You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you want to listen on to find out what he has to say about the Brisbane property market and all the things you need to do from a due diligence point of view, such as floods and building and pest reports before you buy a property. Talk to the pest and building guy because, let me give you an example, we had a house where it was a great house, lovely, everything was going sweet, and then all of a sudden the pest and building tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, there's a termite mound on the stump. I thought, oh, here we go. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Boot Camp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Charles Wiggett, principal of House Realty, which is a boutique agency based in the Brisbane Riverside suburb of Graceville. Their claim to fame is that they know these Western Brisbane suburbs better than anyone, from Milton to Sherwood and St. Lucia, St. Lucia, how do you say that? Probably I would say Indrapilly to, yeah. Keep Indrapilly it. to Kenmore. Yeah, to yeah. Kenmore, yeah. So that's, that'll, that'll be good. That'll do. We'll get, we'll get around that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they pride themselves on old-fashioned service, local knowledge and actually caring. And we're keen to uncover why they've identified these as points of difference. Now, we're also looking to get insights into this part of Brisbane as we know that it's the nuances of individual markets that make all the difference when making purchasing decisions. And welcome, Charles. Thank you. Thanks for being our first guest in Brisbane uh, live, I guess. We've had guests from Brisbane in Sydney, so uh, we really appreciate it. Um, I guess that Brisbane's got lots of different properties, like every different city's got different styles of property. In the patch that you work in, in the kind of the inner west, I guess, what are the different types of properties that are very common and that buyers love and hate? Look, it's very dynamic because you've got a whole range of uh, not only Queenslanders, post-wars, you've got fibros, you've got... You know, some some are just even tin sheds almost to some mm. degree. And then you've got modern contemporaries, low set bricks. So it's a very dynamic market. And I think from a buyer's perspective, there's a lot of choice, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It just depends what their bent is. In the area that I do generally, it tends to be more the classic Queenslander style homes yeah. that uh, are fetch the premiums and what people do search for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of, if I had to describe that, that's sort of where they would be looking for a lot of in the areas I do at this point. And what, what makeup do they make of the suburbs? Are like, are they 50%? Are they 70%? Are they? Look, it is very interesting, If it, particularly let's just take Chalmer, Graceful, Sherwood, Corinda, for example. I mean, there's yeah. what they call low side corridor, high side. And that, I think, is a reflection of not only the actual level mm-hmm. of the land, but also the value of the land. So a block of land in low side will fetch between 6, 630 you go to corridor, it can be anywhere up to seven. And if you go high side, and it can be 800 plus, mm-hmm. and that's within 500 meters. And what are the differences there? Like, what, what does it actually mean, low side, high side, corridor? Yeah, look, I don't think anyone can determine that exactly, but I think it's a combination of not only height in the land yep. uh, from uh, west to east, but also I think it's the case of that the values seem to have been, although that's changing, the dynamics are changing. And I think the values, because the high side tends to be your more big, sprawling, rambling, big Queenslanders on 810, 1200 square meter blocks, and there's mm-hmm. a lot more of them than what there are corridor and low side. And they, that's where the, I think some of the perceptions are gone. It's just pricing. Because we've got floods to consider in Brisbane. Yes. Obviously, fairly recent history. Mm. So I guess that's part of what you're talking about impacting on the, the value. I mean, there's always, you know, the high side you're going to get views, right? Yep. And obviously better light and a number of aspects that add value to the actual land, you know, in a material sense. But also you've got that spectre of flood and that recent memory of flood as well. So I'm presuming that that is one of the big factors Look, here. I think not, not really. It's interesting because if I had to describe low side, it seems to be catching up. I think flood mm-hmm. is a little, is a very personal thing now. It's not mm. necessarily logic. And I can talk candidly because not only did I get flooded in 
2011. Mm-hmm. But then in 2014, I bought in Laybourne Street, which actually got flooded as well. Mm. So I know the insurances and all that sort of stuff really well and how to do it. And I wouldn't have any issue um, with uh, buying a flood property at any mm-hmm. time. But I think from a buyer's perspective, it really just depends on their background experience. Yeah. If they're from Sydney and Melbourne, sometimes they are a little bit nervous because they've heard all the bad talk about it. Yeah. Um, which is not necessarily true in many senses. You know, I think there's a lot of aspects you've got to look at, the insurances, the resale. Yep. And if you know a good agent that knows those things, mm. they can explain that. And you can make a, a decision based on fact rather than a lot of the scaremongering that does go on. Yeah, I mean, look, one of the amazing things about market uh, economics and free markets is that, you know, you've got demand and supply. And if there's a inf- piece of information, it should be factored into the price. So, you know, if it is in a flood zone, and that is factored into the price, as in you're buying it 15, 20% under, then maybe something that's up the road, you know, that does that, that's maybe, you know, means that it's, you know, potentially something to consider. But, you know, I guess if it's a flood zone and it's not factored into the price and you're paying top dollar yeah, compared to something else in the suburb, then you've got to kind of be, you know, putting it into your kind of decision it, on valuation, I guess. It's a balancing act, you know, and I think that depends on the agent and how they explain it. See, I'm very candid with people, and, and I guess they tend to, Feel comfortable with me talking about it because mm-hmm. I have got been flooded and post flood, so I've got I know <laughs> what I've been through, and I was there. You know, I drove a boat from some areas across streets. You mm-hmm. know, and I helped muck out houses, and we got mm-hmm. and it was a beautiful community uh, mm-hmm. event in some degrees. Um, so it boils down to a personal thing, but yes, yep. you do tend to get properties for cheaper if they flooded. Mm. But then again, it depends on the how first level how much in the first level did it get second level inundation you know i've yeah, got properties yep. where we had second level inundation and i still hold the street record from three years ago mm. so it's it's quite a fickle creature and i think if it's explained to buyers properly and how where why and what they're buying yeah i think there's a lot more peace of mind and they may more cons- may consider it more as opposed to if an agent that doesn't know what they're talking about so those buyers that are more likely to accept you know, your explanation, I guess, of the impact of that. Are they already living in the area or are they coming from outside or is there no difference? Bit of both. You know, I think the ones that live in the area, I think one of the trends I'm seeing is if their parents or they got flooded, there's probably a lot more reticence to do something. Yeah. Because they've had firsthand experience. But it seems to be interesting with the, if the parents have experienced that, then it seems to be more impactful on them. If they've experienced it, I guess it depends on where it was, how much it was, you know, and, and whether it... You know, there's a lot of sellers that I've had where they've actually had separations over the flood. But, you know, Mm. the reality of it, it's not the flood. Yeah. Flood is a flood is a flood. Yeah. But what I'm finding is, is that the interstate buyers, it tends to be uh, misinformation that is fed to them from so-called experts that, you know, realestate.com and they think they know everything and they read about the flood and they think they know everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I was looking at just yesterday, actually, the flood map that the Brisbane government's put out. And, uh, you know, can you rely on something like that? Because it seems like, you know, if you relied on that, you pretty much wouldn't buy pretty much anywhere near the river, you know, and some suburbs are completely wiped out. So, you know, is it actually something, should buyers even really look at that, like, you know, in your experience, or do you think it's a bit overdone? Look, I think it's like anything. You've got to do your due diligence. You're buying a property, you're investing a lot of money. You've got to do your due diligence and you've got to take that into, into factor Mm. it in. I know what you do. It's called the inter, it's a, it's a flood mapping predictive thing they've got. And some of the predictions have never been flooded ever. Yeah. But they predict that if this happened and this certain thing happened, then it could. Mm. The reality is we live next to a river. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that's what you got to factor. And I think the fact that it's happened only, you know, since 1900 twice, mm. you know, um, yeah. yeah, of any major event. You know, the cha- when we bought again, we thought we're well, probably not going to be there more than 10 years. The chance of it happening while we're in that 10-year stint is pretty remote. Mm. But, you know, we're insured. we got alternate accommodation cover. If it does happen, we get a full renovation. Yeah. It is disruptive though, isn't it? I mean, like you mentioned that some people's marriages haven't survived and yes, sure, obviously there was something fundamentally probably wrong with, with the relationship that that, uh, I guess, traumatic event triggered that, that split. But that is, I guess, part and parcel of the importance of 
choosing the right property and actually having a sense of place and home. And, you know, it's, it's intrinsically wrapped up with our identities and our successes and, and our families and how we live. It's really complex, which is one of the reasons why I find property so fascinating is that if you get the wrong property or something terrible happens, it can put extraordinarily, in some cases, unbearable strain on relationships. So, Oh, absolutely. Look, I yeah. think it's all, it's all about, um, look, you know, the, the, the flood does and has put because a lot of people thought they were covered by insurance and weren't yeah. like we weren't yeah because apparently it was something to do with I don't know backflow drain stuff yeah so a technicality yeah. you know it's a flood a flood a flood to me it's water it comes up doesn't matter where it comes from but the, mm. you know, at that point the insurance agencies had different demarcations of what it was so we weren't covered I mean we were quite lucky because we didn't have a lot downstairs yeah. But it still had an impact and it was worse because we were actually in Harvey Bay and we couldn't get out. Yeah. Mm. Friends, this was a beautiful thing about how community pulls together. Our friends actually emptied our house Mm. into the neighbours just up the road Mm. and then took pictures of how the water was slowly rising, rising, rising. Wow. Did you get it all back? Uh, yeah, like, uh, yeah. We didn't get anything from the insurance company, but uh, got it back know. from your neighbours. Yeah, we got all the neighbours. He yeah. was building at the time, so yeah. um, it was covered. Yeah, but and it was out of it. So um, yeah, look. I mean, so what's your tips? Like, I agree. I mean, I think you, you to blanket rule out every property in every suburb because it could potentially, you know, flood is kind of being a bit ignorant that you know there would be great properties to consider in those areas. But there's things that you'd have to do additional due diligence on and insurance would be one. I mean, what's some of the other tips that you say to buyers when they are considering a property that, you know, I guess there's different levels of flood risk, right? There's ones that are right on the, you know, a low point in sea level right near the river. They're the first ones to flood. And then there's ones that if it gets too so, you know, much water, then they will flood. So what are the tips you say to buyers that are considering buying in flood zones? Look, I think you've got to look at the flood map. You know, there's there's, there's what they call floodwise property report. Now yep. that's more of what actually happened and what that shows on it is not only where the flood levels came to and some of the other predictives, yep. it also shows where um, the lowest part of the land is mm. and the highest part of the land. Yep. And that's a good guide because then you can sort of see. And it, it is, again, it's an approximation. Yeah. It's like anything, you do as much due diligence as you can. I think the agent should be able to answer a lot of questions. Like there are certain insurers I certainly for that area wouldn't go through. I'm not going to name them, but they're just not interested and they blanket cover even an unflooded house with a high premium because it was in a flood area. If there's like 10 insurers though, like how many insurers would look at a lot of properties in flood zones? Like one or two or is it like still eight or nine? There's there's a lot of them. You know, there is a lot. And then a lot of mainstream. Like, you know, there's, and again, I'm not sure whether I'm allowed to mention them or not, but there are others that have come on stream that weren't doing flood before because the market's become competitive. Mm. The pricing has dropped dramatically from that perspective. So I guess and, there's um, a demand. People want to be covered for floods, so there's a yeah. product to be, to exactly. be put out there. And, and the agent should be able to show the buyer what the existing insurance cover is and what the costs of those are. So that's one thing I do in, mm. in the buyer packs that we supply is, is that, you know, obviously we personal information, but we do show subject to the seller being comfortable with that, mm. um, that what the cover is, how much it is, and that then gives the buyer, I guess, some level of comfort that they can be covered for. And it's always tax deductible, right, for investors. You know, if it's actually a thousand bucks a year, it's tax deductible. (laughs) Um, You know, end of the day, like it's, you know, if if you're factoring an additional cost, then, you know, I guess it's, it might mean, you you know, you're getting at a much better price. You've got to, I don't know, I think you've got to be open to it, I guess. Yeah, but you also got to think about capital growth. And I think that if these things are going to, particularly for investors, you know, living, making these decisions, if you're going to live there is one thing, because there's, there's lots of other things involved in making a decision about where you're going to live. But for an investor, you do have to be focused on capital growth. And if that's going to impact negatively on capital growth, Mm. or your ability to get tenants to stay there or, you know, that, that general disruption, then I do think investors have to be very careful about flood zones. Mm. Look, they, they do, but I can show properties I've sold two or three times over in flood zones with nothing done to them where the capital – I'll give you one example. We sold one in Tweedale Street where we sold it was, I think it was 765 and then two years later nothing done to it apart from a little garden bed put in. Mm. We sold it for 860. Mm. You know, and that got flooded. So mm. I can actually show, and a good local agent that knows their stuff, and I think it's important, particularly in that area, that you sort of know a, a reputable agent um, that is in the area. And one way to test that is I use a rating system called Agent. Mm-hmm. 
that's a good way to see the credibility and the feedback of the agent because it also comes from a buyer and a vendor perspective. So that's mm-hmm. so they if they have been in the area, that sort of requires a bit of credibility for yeah. that. Do your research, check, you know, ask the agent what insurance companies mm. and, and the agent, you know, what I say is look, these are the ones I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, that have some some benefits and this is what the current seller is insured with. Mm-hmm. Again, litigation is you got to be really careful. Mm, of course you do. You know, how much I actually tell people and, and I just say, well, look, do your own diligence, but this is what I understand it. If you were, we've got a different tax, I think we've covered the floods. Um, yep. You know, if you were an investor in Brisbane yourself personally and, you know, you were looking to buy an investment property, what would you roughly, what would you go buy, I guess? Look, I think, again, it depends on what you're sort of looking for. Look, uh, if you're looking for capital growth. Yep. You know, growth, you, yeah. you might look at uh, properties that have like a post-war home that potentially can be renovated, but it's in good condition. You can put a tenant in there straight away. There's a minimal um, dress up that needs to be done, like, you know, make sure you're fire alarm compliant, those sort of things. And then you wait for time, capital appreciation mm-hmm. in that respect. And, you when know, you say post-war, you wouldn't buy a Queenslander? Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. I'm yeah, just okay. giving you an example. You know, it depends on your price point. Yeah. And then you can go to other investors that are looking for something with a warranty on it, uh, something that's fairly newly built, and that's having a good yield on it, and they don't have to do anything with it. Yeah. So I think it depends. What I try and do with the investors is find out what they're, what, what they're interested in because there are specific investors that will only look at Yeah. Mm. Nothing else. And would you, what, you know, was if you, let's say, had an unlimited budget, not unlimited, unlimited, but let's say I had a million dollars or 1.2, mm. you know, what price point would you enter as an investor into Brisbane, do you think? Look, again, I think you've got to be mindful of are you a first-time investor or mm-hmm. are you a seasoned investor? I think there's mm-hmm. two differentials there. I mean, if you if you had the money and you inherited and you're a first-time investor, I probably wouldn't spend 1.2 million. Yeah. I would look to, and this is just personal. Yeah. Be careful, of course. not giving financial advice. No, here. no, no. Just yeah. curious as to um, the prison market, what you would I do. I would yeah. look at a, a post-war in a good location. close. And I think the crucial thing is close to train, close to bus, good schools, private schools, access yep. to the city, I think are the essential elements as from an investor's perspective. Yep. Let me give you an example. If you look at Chalmer, Graceville, Sherwood, and I use these examples, and I'm not saying they're the best, but there are other areas around, obviously. But they've got, on average, 10 to 15% of the park of the land masses are covered in parks. Yep. You've got private schools within a 10-minute driving range. You've got train. You've got bus. You've got a cafe set that's just mm-hmm. very, very strong. And how many k's are these suburbs from the city? So if you look at uh, Chelma, for example, that's about 8.5k as yep. the crow flies, give or take. But you do have two access points, one through Fairfield Road and one through through the city in Indrapur. So yep. again, that's what I try and tell investors to look for. What is this infrastructure behind? Schools, lifestyle, parks, children, families, train, bus. Yeah. All that is part of the the glue, I guess, that will then enhance the capital growth over time. All that typical thing. It's, that, it's nothing new. You yeah. know, I'm not telling you anything. I haven't invented anything new here. It's just yep. but I think principles are the same as they yeah. are. Train, I anyways. definitely believe. And if mm. you look at what happened to Sydney, and I do know because I did when I first came to um, Australia, we lived in Sydney. And if you overlay where all the growth has been, it's been a lot of all the train corridors. Yeah. Um, because obviously that's the easiest access into yep. town. So it's not I mean it's you know it's it's the fundamentals that were there fifty years ago. Yeah still here now, basically. Yeah, it's that accessibility that's so important. What, what sort of proportion of properties do you sell via private treaty versus auction? Look, I mean, again, I think every, I would say that I probably do 80% through private treaty, 20% auction. Um, look, it's not that I'm averse to it. It's, I think a lot of people in uh, Brisbane are still not quite comfortable with the auction process. And I think mm-hmm. there's two elements to that. One, it's probably not explained properly. And I think there is a way to explain it. And it is a process. Um, whereas a lot of, you know, a lot of people think it's just an auction, but it's not. It's actually a four-step process in my mm-hmm. view. You've got pre-auction. Generally, when I'm doing an auction, I will sell 60, 65% of my stock before it even hits auction yeah. on an unconditional status. Then we've got auction itself. And look, if that passes in, Potentially got conditional buyers, yeah. And then if that doesn't work, then we got what we call mop up, which mm-hmm. we know what's <laughs> you know that's what I call it. So yeah, we know yeah. what's been through. We know the pricing. I then price the property on the day because mm-hmm. I think when you're doing an auction campaign, you've got to be seen to be strong in the marketplace. You can't yeah. dither. Yeah. So 
the auction's finished. I sit down with the owner. We talk strategy. We've had this pre-auction meeting, so we know what we're going to do if it if it passes mm-hmm. in, and we price it then very quickly. Yeah. And then I go back to all the buyers and I recall all the buyers, and then often I've been able to pick someone up that hasn't found anything. Yeah. I mean, you don't want it sitting around, right? After you've passed in at auction, you don't want to be some buyer to be looking yeah, at that in yeah. a month's time and go, it's gone to auction, it has passed in and it still hasn't sold. It's not, Look, it's it's not very, giving people very confidence. It's very, very that that happens. Yeah, you know, of course. Well, you yeah. got all the price feedback, supposedly, yeah. so you, mm. you use it. You say, right, well, this they, they responded in these ways because you can't quote prices here, can you? Look, it's the craziest thing because, you know, I can put a price up. I know the, the best I can stretch to would be doing some similar sales in the area that represent mm. that. Mm. I don't know whoever came up with that idea, but look, I respect it. It is the law and we've got to... Can you explain that to our listeners, how that might be different to other states? Look, from what I understand is is that you can, in New South Wales and, and, and Victoria, you can give a price guide, yes, yep. even if it is no price. Yep. Whereas we can't even do that. You know, what we can allude to is what's sold before or we can allude to what recent sales have happened in the area and that, you know, the owner's expectations, you know, make that up for yourself. So it's either an actual price, 1.2, or it's... It can be price or price guide. Yeah. But if you're doing for sale, you've, yeah, you've got... So, well, that's what they want. So, okay, so if you're private treaty, you put a price on it, right? If I'm private treated, look, again, it depends on the property. So Mm. what I'm finding at the moment, because the market's a bit fickle, I'll put for sale because we want to test a little bit, see what's going on. So the first couple of weeks, we want to just see what the market's doing. Do we get an offer straight off the bat? Can we get it done? I think if you price it straight off away and you get it wrong, generally there's only one way you go. And then if you're seeing two or three price drops because you got it too high. Yep. So I like to do for sale to start with. And then because I do regular reviews with my vendors, we talk strategy in terms of the buyer feedback, what they're saying, mm-hmm. where they're at. So they base their decision if there are any reductions in price or, or we price it mm-hmm. based on fact as opposed to me just ringing them up saying you've got to drop the price. Whereas with auction, obviously, you can't put a price on it. So, okay, a buyer rings you. I've seen this property, you know, beautiful Queensland on top of the hill, love it. What do they ask you? Because I know Look, every that, other that, state first they thing ask- is price guide. Yeah, yeah of so course. Look, you know, and then I say to him, look, you know, I can certainly help you. Um, what I try and do, I guess, is, well, look, what's your budget? What can you spend? Mm. And then if they say I can spend X and it's close, I can say, look, you know, I, I'd suggest You're on the you, money. I, I suggest you go to the auction and find out yourself or I'm happy to take an offer mm. off you. And so long as it's unconditional before auction day and the owners accept all the terms, then – yeah. This is like, you show me yours, I show you mine, isn't it? I mean, it, it. I find it insane that it's legislated that you cannot give a price guide. I think that the agent, uh, for starters, you've obviously put a, a price guide on the agency agreement. You've told the vendor what to expect. Yeah, you've researched yeah. it and all that sort of stuff. So clearly you've got an expectation. The vendor's got an expectation. You've done your research. And then the buyer comes along and they've got to make up their own mind. And then, of course, you're going to try to put together an auction and, and work out where your buyers are at. And, and everyone's behind smoke and mirrors. No one's telling anybody anything. Look, yeah, and buyers are innately suspicious, so they think it's a trick question when yeah. I say, well, what's your budget? Mm. Yeah. Well, so, I'm not telling you. Yeah, and I say, well, look, I said, I can't help you if you can't help me. Legislation is what it is. If mm. you help me do that, I can give you some similar sales in the area if that helps. Is that um, new legislation? Yeah, last couple of years. I yeah. Think yeah. Coming, so. And, I mean, what's your gut feel that a lot of agents just kind of bend the rules a little bit potentially to, you know, because end of the day they – they don't want to be like playing games. It's like, look, it's, look, it's the, roughly the way, going to be roughly this, you know, and just the, the way I get around it is by saying, well, what's your budget? Yeah. That's the that's easiest and simple it. way. Yeah. I think that's the way you've got to try Look, I mean, you know, that's, there's, there's, there's equivalent sales as well. You know, what's sold in yep. the area you can. And then the CMA, sorry, in the form six, you can say that you can display uh, some, and we, what I tend to do is if, if we are going to show recent sales, I'll pick what I think is reasonable and the it's vendor is happy with that. Mm. But the reality of it is you, you're not – pricing a house is crazy because mm. even houses that are exactly the same don't sell for the same price. No, and yeah. like you said before, you've got quite a lot of disparity in terms of the type of stock you've got. And, I mean, it's the same with the area in which I'm in in Sydney. And so that's one of the things that makes it interesting. It's not not homogenous and it's one of the things that makes it a good area to invest in in terms of where we're at, where I am. Um 
but it makes it really difficult to price because mm. the most recent sale might be two years ago that's really oh, comparable. And then a lot, lot, lot of water's got under the bridge, pardon the pun. Yeah, um, <laughs> good one. I, like that. I don't use that a lot, but yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned around about 65% of the properties you take to auction uh, you would sell prior unconditionally. And how do you identify the buyer and, or how do you get to that point where it sells prior? Look, uh, my view is it's, it's the reality of any campaign is for sale or by auction. Mm. You know, if a price comes along and the owner's happy with, that's what it's determined by. Yeah. I, I will take an offer to them. I'm quite clear to the buyer that we usually have to be unconditional one business day prior to the auction. Mm. And that's on all counts. Because Why if, do you wait that long? I mean, if the buyer gives you an look, I mean, that's that's week, the that's, that's the, the absolute last, last yeah. because oh, you right, can't right. go into an obviously into an auction with a live no. offer, no, because that's catastrophic. Mm. Um, so I say to them, look, that's the time you have, five pm on that day. And the reason I allow a business day is because if they need an extra bit of time, yep. and the deal's ninety nine percent there, it gives us a bit of wriggle room. For buyers, what do you think? You know, is it a four week auction campaign? Depends on the house. Generally, the more expensive ones, I will do five. Okay. The you know a million plus, I probably would do five. Yeah. Under that, I'd do four. Okay. And let's say it's a four. What do you think, as a buyer, is the the premium point to you're going to go hard on a property? What would you do? Week one, week two, week three, one four. Again, what that depends on is depends how keen they are. If you really, I sort of think like anything. If you go in strong, you like the place. Don't muck around. Mm. You know. I mean, end of the day house is only worth what a buyer is prepared to pay. And in yep. your head, you have a price. That's the reality. What I can do as an agent from a seller's perspective is because, look, my philosophy is I work obviously for the seller, but I yep. work with the buyer. Yeah. Um, is I can potentially show value to the buyer by what I know, what I can deliver to them and how mm. I can talk about the suburb. And the day you're selling to the buyer, right? They've got to buy it. So, you know, and you've, you know, you want it sold and it's aligned interests. I guess with, when you've got some people, you know, it's very common now. I get it with clients. They're uh, potentially getting priced out of Sydney and Melbourne in the areas that they would really like to live. Mm. Uh, and the, if they do want to buy, they potentially could push themselves, but then that would equate to a lot of debt. And what does that debt mean for their working future and their, you know, their, I guess they need to earn a big income and then that means the stress and the time. Um, and a lot of them are considering Brisbane, you know, because mm. they come up here and, you know, they see the price of the property and look on real estate or come to you and think about, wow, I can get this house the same in Sydney for 700 and it was 2 million. What's your view of when you see those buyers walk in on a Saturday um, and what they, how they approach it, you know, is it easy for a real estate agent? Do they kind of overpay? No, I don't think it's overpaying. I think it's all relative to your perception on price. Look, mm. locals will always be a little bit, not Blinken's probably the wrong word, but a little bit stoic on what they think it's worth because yep. they, obviously on realestate.com, it's a very tight community around there. So people know a lot of stuff through talk and everything like that. Mm. So I think a Sydney buyer comes in a little bit or a Melbourne buyer, I don't think they overpay. I just think they see better value. So, for example, yep. I saw one in Graceful. <laughs> is, I love, I'm sorry, I just love <laughs> But it's true. Let me give you an example. This guy said, I can't believe I've just paid 945000 for a four-bed, two-bath house with a pool, 8K from the CBD. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem is they are comparing it to – where they come from, not where they are. And, and that's, the, that's it's interesting. I mean, as a salesperson, of course you're going to say it that way and see it that way, and I 100% agree with you as a salesperson. As a buyer's agent, I go, guys, it's not good value because it's not in the area in which you know. Mm. You know, like if the local buyers are more stoic on the price and they're not prepared to pay that money, then you've got to be careful, you know. <laughs> look, you, you do, but I think there's also balance. I think what you've got to look at it as is that sometimes the locals can be, you know, they can be a little bit, they're, they're too analytical. Yeah, that's what you're saying. And what I say to buyers is if, if it falls over on bank valve, you renegotiate. That's mm. that's the big determinant. If the bank is prepared to lend to that amount yep. and you're prepared to spend that amount, then that's what it is. And the reality of it is, is what I look at is, is that if we never paid more than what a house was worth ever, prices would have never have gone up. Yeah. So, I mean, buyers, you know, the buyer's agents that I, I use and the buyers that are buying off me, they're not... They're not being ripped off or anything like no, that. No, they're no, just, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not suggesting yeah, that. Yeah, they're it, not. Because don't, don't, one of the things what I work with the buyer's agents is, you know, they, they know exactly the value of the property and I can show them evidence of why I think it's worth that. 
Yeah, so um, what you're saying, like if you've got two people looking at the same property, one's from Brisbane, lived in Brisbane, you know, maybe being a little bit more conservative, oh, I can't, can't justify paying that. You know, they sit on their hands a bit more. You've got sign a Sydney, Melbourne buyer coming in and yeah, it's a great property. It ticks all the boxes. They've done the due diligence and they're willing to just put that little bit more in. They, they're the ones who get the property, right? And if it's in a good area and it's a good suburb that is growing, like sometimes part of the process is actually just getting the deal done and sitting on your hands is, you know, so I can see why you've look, got it. You've got to kind of be also a little bit optimistic and you know be willing to get look, a deal done. Well, obviously, um, it's like going to auction. I mean, the highest bidder buys the property. So yeah. obviously, and, I, and that's all I'm talking about here. What I'm talking mm. about here, though, is that as a interstate buyer or an out of area buyer, and I see it myself exactly that they don't get the nuances of an area and they might buy the low side property for argument's sake and not realize that the local buyers won't go for that as, as hard as they would. That type of thing yeah, look, is what I'm talking about. Look, I think it's you've got to be a little careful with that because I think, you know, there are elements in there that uh, you'd question how serious are the buyers. Mm. And, and I have had buyers that are local said, geez, I wish I had actually bought it mm. because they've almost cut them off despite themselves in some <laughs> yep. degree. Especially when, when I'm dealing Sydney. with buyers from interstate, look, I take them if I take them on a suburb tour, show them the area. I can substantiate everything I can on that mm. price, mm. and then it's up to the buyer's agent to make that decision whether they think that's valuable. And I think the backstop is is that if it is paid too much for it, the mm. bank will soon determine that. That's a good point, actually, because. Uh in Sydney, you pretty much don't buy a property without a 66W. I mean, now you probably, you're finding you maybe can. Um, yeah, but, you, can you know, now. for the last six years, <laughs> let's say, you haven't been able to, you know, if you and, wanted and, to. And just stepping in there, 66W is a certificate in New South Wales that is is given by the even, sorry, the purchaser's solicitor or conveyancer that allows them to waive the cooling off period. So okay. it's mm. all handled by the solicitors, whereas in, in uh, Queensland, of course, the. An email. Yeah, the buyer it can used waive to be, the cooling off yeah, themselves. It used to be, it used to be with uh, go to source and now as long as you've got an email. And there is uh, real works from REIQ, our, our local governing body in real estate, have a document. Yeah. And how often are, you, are people doing that though? Look, it tends to be under intensive uh, multiple offers. Yeah, yeah, property. Ultra property. Yeah. But that and doesn't happen that often? Look, it does. But look, you know, some people will, and again, it depends on the buyer. Like I've got some big time investors that are looking yeah. constantly for opportunities and they will come in, no pest and building, no finance, cooling off period, waived cash. Bang, ready to Big go. Big deposit, 10%, boom, done. So if you do, because, you know, one of the things, you know, client recently bought in Brisbane without a pre-approval, and if he's listening to this is, <laughs> I love you, but um, don't do that <laughs> next time. Um, but we got there, right? And one of the things is we had to, um, you know, uh, I said, look, if you're going to do it, make sure you get a 10-day cooling off, you know, with finance approval, um, just because the banks at the moment, you know, I, you know, by the time we lodge it and get it through, you know, it takes some time. Look, but one of the things in Brisbane, I think with signing contracts is there is always a finance approval, right? Correct. And that just doesn't really happen in, in Sydney and Melbourne. So, you know, if you don't have that luxury, if the valuation does come in low, you couldn't go back to the vendor and say, look, hang on a sec, I can't get finance. Um, so, no, you know, if, and yeah, no, does that correct. often happen on established property here where valuations are coming in, in low? Very rarely because, you know, the growth in, in the areas that I deal with has been consistently. It hasn't been huge, but yep. if you look at the track record the last three years, it's been consistent growth. Mm. Uh, albeit a little bit like, you know, uh, wavy, if you like. Is yep. Generally, rule of thumb, that if I had to give you a guide, if you're putting an offer in in Brisbane, it generally is 14 days for finance. Uh, you've got seven days for pest and building, and that's calendar days. Your cooling off period is five business days. Yeah. Now, the challenge you've got with the cooling off period is if you pull out under that, there's potentially a 0.25% yeah. sting that can come. I've never seen it enacted in my, on my properties mm -hmm. ever. Um, so what I generally find, if someone's going to pull out, it'll generally be under the finance or pest and building. And if you look at the contract that we have, it says satisfactory to the buyer. Yeah, I actually made a mistake there. It's pretty ambiguous. Mm, I said yeah. calling off. I meant finance approval. Mm. Yeah, I said to him at least get a 10-day finance approval and he got mm. a seven. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, seven is pretty tough unless yeah. you're a cash buyer. Often gets buyers, it'll be cash and there's pest and building, which in which case obviously there's no finance clause at all. Yeah. But look, look, you know, with the, the, the banking commission, the, I'm noticing that the finance clauses are getting longer. Mm. 
the buyer's agents I deal with tend to be business days. So they'll say 10 business days for finance and seven business days for pest and building. And just on the finance as well, like 42 is pretty standard in Sydney, Melbourne, but in Brisbane, 30, 30 generally is what we look to do. Hey, yeah. You're talking about settlement period. Settlement, settlement yeah, period. Yeah, and so days. you kind of, uh, you know, for buyers, if you are buying Brisbane, 30 days is tight. Uh, for finance, it if is. you need to be on the ball. And so, uh, you know, in Sydney, Melbourne, 42 is, you know, pretty good. You, you'll be mm. fine. Like you should be fine. But if you want to swap banks from a pre-approval point of view, um, you pre approval with Macquarie and they're not offering you a great deal and you want to go to St. George or Westpac, um, you know, 30 days is getting tight. So you've oh, got to be really careful. I strongly don't change banks if you can avoid it, particularly yeah. in this, because I've got a lot of clients now where they've gone back for their pre-approvals because they haven't found anything. And because of the banking Commission rules, it's not so much the rules changes, they're just being a lot more, like, for example, in the past, you'd say, what's your living expenses? And then you'd sort of, you know, so are that. Yeah. As long as it met the minimum requirement, yep. you're in. But now they're getting the statements and saying, well, where's your mortgage? Where's your house insurance? Yep. Where's your, and by the way, that surplus you said you had, where's that? Yeah. Because we all had surpluses in the past, probably were there, but generally rule of thumb got spent. So you, obviously, when you're selling prior to auction, you want to sell without a cooling off period. So that gives people opportunity. Well, you, they've got to do the building and pest inspection and all that due diligence prior to actually submitting Correct. their offer and waiving that cooling off period. Actually, on your website, you you it's noted that, in, in inverted commas, auctions remove a certain level of control from the seller. What do you mean by that? Um, look, I mean, I think... The, 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 I do like auctions and I think they're a great process. But, you know, it, it can put a little bit of pressure on the on the seller that, you know, they may have to make a decision on the day. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, ultimately, I think what you've got to look at is as a seller when you do these things is what is the macro end game? You know, I think we get too focused on price and the conditions. But, you know, there are people that it might suit. They may not get the extra 10 they wanted but it does get them into the next house. It does get them moving forward. They're buying mm. and selling in the same market. And I think we've got to be a little bit caught up in, in being a little bit too finicky. And look, I've got some properties where they, they, they turned down an offer five grand away. Yeah. You know, and they were adamant they could get more. And I said, well, okay, that's fine. And then since then, it's been a lot more difficult to get even close to that. And because money's not always the motivator, right? hundred percent. You know, it's not about, I want to sell this for the absolute premium price. If that facilitates me to buy another place or it facilitates me to, you know, do that quicker or, you know, allows me to, the terms of a, a deal is just as important sometimes as the price. Look, I think, yeah, I think it's, and again, it depends on each individual. Yeah. You know, there's some uh, older couples that I'm dealing with and their prerogative is to get into the, into the unit or the townhouse downside so they can travel. Um, they've had the house for 20 years. So, you know, if there's a five or 10 grand difference to what the ideal was and what we said we would get, yeah. you know, part of what I do is I have my appraisal. I'm generally pretty conservative and the owner then has their price. Yeah. So we will <laughs> always go for that price to start with. But any sort of changes that I make is always driven by fact reports and follow up. Because I think, you know, if a vendor is going to make a decision to change price, it has to be based on something, not just me yeah. ringing them up. Yeah. And how do you get into the vendor's head and understand what's actually motivating them in the first look, place? Look, I think it's just listening. You know, it's not, again, it's not rocket science. You mm. know, it's, and look, and I don't always get it right, but I try and listen it because I do a two-step appraisal. So I always do the first step is where I go and see the house. I look at it and I get a feel for it because I'm very visual. I ask them what they like, what they don't like. And then I look around, how have they kept the look like, you know? And then I ask questions at the same time, where you're going to, what are you doing? And I mm. find out about them. So by the time I'm finished that, I know what the house is. I know where it is at. Then I go away and do my research. Mm. And I think it's in, personally in this market and any agent should be doing that. It is mm. a bit more work. But then I can come back well-versed what, where, why, and how. Yeah. And I have a feeling for where I think they're going to be. Rather than gung-ho, I can sell this at 9.20 tomorrow, no problems, you know, here's the Look, contract. I've lost listings because <laughs> the, the agent that I was up against um, said, oh, we'll guarantee you this, but I don't think Charles can. And I said, well, <laughs> and I said to I said, look, I said, look, if that's where you want to go, I love the word guaranteed. Oh, That's no. what they said. They and said also guaranteed. saying that someone else can't. <laughs> and then the irony of it is, and this is how some agents just have no idea, they ring me up and say, hey, look, we got the listing off you. And by mm. the way, if you've got any buyers, can you bring them through to us? Oh, yep. dear, no. And I said, yes, okay, good luck with that one. Yeah. And then the seller rings me up 
the end of it and saying, God, I wish I'd gone with you because guess what they got? Eight yeah. or five. Yeah. I mean, it's a behavioral bias we all do. We always go for, yeah. you know, it's unfortunate we go for the person who promises yeah. the most. And um, I guess one of the things I was seeing a lot in Sydney, Melbourne, is a lot of the tailwinds that pushed up the property market uh, are turning into a bit more of a headwind, you know, relaxed borrowing to more, you know, conservative kind of borrowing limits, you know, interest-only loans, now moving to maybe more principal interest, you know, the Royal Commission. Um, you know, there's lots of things that are, cha- are forcing the property market to slow down and give it maybe a challenging time. And I guess when you look at Brisbane, they had the same, you know, tailwinds and, you know, low interest rates and things like that. Why didn't Brisbane boom? when Sydney and Melbourne did? Look, I think it boils down to primarily job opportunities. You know, there's lots of job opportunities, but there's certainly not the level you've got Sydney and Melbourne. If we had the same job opportunities available to people in this area, it would have gone the same. But in saying that, I think Brisbane's not a bad, hasn't done badly. It's been consistent in its growth. It's mm. been steady in its growth. And that to some is probably what's reflecting now. It's probably not having as much impact with the changes in the market as opposed to Sydney. And I see more divergence happening. I think one of the issues with the Brisbane market, a lot of the press is around the oversupply of apartments. And, you know, and there's been lots of uh, reports around, particularly at the moment, you know, settlement risk and, and obviously valuations coming in up to 25% less than contract price. But also the fact that there's been negative price growth, which is a nice way of saying loss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in many, many uh, suburbs in this new and uh, in this in in this new stock, and it's a little bit like Melbourne when you consider Docklands and that oversupplied area of apartments down there versus the rest of Melbourne has got done extraordinarily well. So I guess there's there's similar things happening in the Brisbane market, correct? And there's a lot of press around the oversupply and less around everything yes, else. Yes, there are, but I actually think the two are distinctively different. Mm. The unit market is very much different from the housing market. Yeah. And yeah. yes, there is an oversupply. But again, what it boils down to, and, and look, and we've had units and they have been challenging to sell, but I mm. think part of the process is what I say to my vendors is that, look, you've got to, if, if it's vacant, you need to dress it. You know, um, we do a lot of uncut iPhone videos on places where we try and specifically identify where we think the buyer's going to come to and we deliver that within the 10K radius through social media. Um, Different things. We always try, you know, we have buyer's agents that I always, when the before the property goes to market, I will Mm. send it out to agents so they can see if there's, so there's, as an agent, you can't just stand wait for people to come to you. you've got to be proactive so especially when you've got a new unit that uh there's only a thousand other them for sale at the moment yes, so absolutely. you can't um you know you're trying to sell something that everyone's selling it's and very it's, hard it's back to basics it's phone call phone call phone yeah. call, phone call. Yeah. you know it's just that constant back because i've often had buyers that didn't like it to start with haven't found anything and i've rung them back and they said oh is that still available so yeah absolutely yeah. come along have a look yeah i guess in the inner rings of brisbane there's some parts that have done really well, right? You know, and there has been a, so even though Sydney and Melbourne have gone up, they've done really well. And there's been a bit of a pressure cooker there, a shortage of quality properties. There's been, you know, a, you know, a lot of buyers upgrading into that area, the ones who are kind of getting wage growth and got good jobs. Do you find that's in the inner ring? You've seen it's, some patches have done really well. It is quite interesting. And look, and I have to be candid, I'm not a unit specialist. So I go on what I sort of see. But what I have noticed is a lot of the ones that were bought off the plan, the cheaper end of the market, are mm. struggling because mm. they're not hitting the valuation price points. And obviously what's happening, or I have heard, is is that the they're defaulting, mm. foregoing their, their uh, deposits, and they're going into things like the developers are then putting heard one guy was given a car away or it's mm. a furniture mm. package yeah yep. and that's but i think you know you've got to be <laughs> i think you've just got to be a bit careful not to just get caught up in the general for because there are yep. good locations with good units everywhere and i think it's a case of just being diligent and look if you do use a buyer's agent that's one way of doing it where you can get the research done for you but do your research you know because what you find with the apartments is it's interesting i think from what i can see is is that the higher end of the market's actually doing quite well yeah Right. And so the higher end, give us some example of what the higher end would look, look eight, like. Look, eight, nine plus million, you know, that sort of thing. The, 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 because uh, Riverfront? Uh, like Not necessarily talking- Riverfront, but in good locations. You know, yeah. what I'm finding is a lot of older couples are looking to go into units from there. And look, my area in particular, it's either into a lifestyle 
village. Sorry, yeah. can I just double check? You said eight or nine million for a unit? No, no, no. Eight, eight or nine hundred. To oh, right. Million. Yeah, <laughs> I was yeah. like, no. wow. Oh, I would love whole... to have a unit like that. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there is. There's beautiful ones, right? Like, yeah. And there's, you know, they're older blocks generally. Mm. They're massive, you know, great views, you know, lifted. Yeah, look, yeah, and, and I think it boils down to do, you, do your, your homework. Yeah. You know, do your homework. You know, find the location. Where is it at? You know, mm. and, and things I say to a lot of, of, of if you are a buyer looking is, mm. particularly in unit blocks, look at what developments are. Mm. Supply. Yeah, it's not so much that that is part of it, but also you might buy a unit with a view, and all of a sudden, two years mm. later, oh, it's lost. Yeah, there's a building in front of you. So you've, so you've got to look at those elements. It's good buying now, I think, for buyers. So it's actually, you know, I think if you're out looking for a unit, mm. some opportunities out there. One of these things that I've uh, thought about with Brisbane, and I'm happy to be wrong, um, is that in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, people who work in the city would much rather live, you know, in the inner ring, you know, or the east or the lower north than live in Central Coast or Wollongong um, because of the commute and the lifestyle benefits and, you know, on weekends and things like that and the beaches. Uh, in Melbourne, very similar. Most people would like prefer to live in the inner ring or, you know, on the Bayside or then live in Geelong or Mornington because of the commute and, mm. and things like that. But in Brisbane, you know, I feel like there's a part of the population who are doing quite well and working in the city, but would much prefer to live on the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast. And um, so what happens is a lot of the higher incomes get sucked out of the city to those hubs. Is that True. Look, I, I don't have stats on that, but look, I, I would have, I wouldn't have thought so. There is a move for people to downsize into those areas. Yeah, you know, I know particularly the Sunshine Coast is is because it's not as developed, and it is some areas a lot cheaper than so the Gold a Coast. Retirement market, as yeah. opposed to a or they're buying with a view for retirement. You know, so yeah. they'll buy a unit up there, three bed, two bath, with a bit of a view, and they'll use that either as a holiday destination mm. or they'll buy it rented out with a view that in 10 years time that's where they'll move to but a lot of like 40 year olds like couples who you know work in the city and maybe have quite high paying jobs that they are happy to commute is that common or is that look i'd be anywhere i look we're a bit spoiled in brisbane i think a commute in brisbane versus a commute in sydney are two different things <laughs> yeah that's I think, what i mean you know, yeah. and i think we're a bit spoiled here so there's probably more chance of that happening but i've never met anyone that likes to commute up from the gold coast into the city um mm. that's that's not a fun thing to do mm -hmm. no i can't you know, it doesn't it's, it's just as crowded <laughs> it may not be as bad as sydney but my view is is that generally what you'll find is what a lot of the couples like that may do is they may go for acreage mm. you know where they're looking for the bigger sprawling house a bit more land um, again it depends on what the profession is you know i've got some friends that are doctors and they just mm like to live out in Brookfield, for example, because they got the nice big houses, the mm -hmm. 10,000 square meters, the big pool, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. where I live in Chelmer, Graceville around there and right through to all those sort of areas, you know, you, you, the great thing about it is you can actually buy something fairly substantial for, you know, I mean, good money. Like Chelmer, for example, that you can buy, as long as you don't mind flood, yep. you can buy a three-bed, one-bath house on 607 square meters for about 600,000. Yeah, they've seen a lot of buyers, agents, and property sellers, I prefer to call them sometimes, um, and they will go to the outskirts of Brisbane and they'll buy uh, what I considered like low price point, more affordable houses, and they'll buy them, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30K from the city um, and, you know, low, low cost investments. You know, what's your viewers on look, a strategy like that? I think you've got to be a little careful with that. Look, and again, look, all these outlying areas are all great and they're going gung ho and they're doing really well. What I find with that is, is that where you find, if there's, you look at like Chalmer Grace, and I come back to that because that's your core area, my, my core <laughs> area, there's no one's making any more land anywhere. Mm. Yes. So the land is very tightly held, if at all, and when blocks come up, they generally go pretty quickly because mm -hmm. no one's making it. Whereas if you look at the further out, and I won't name them, but the further ring suburbs, yep. you know, if they need more land, they just go and bowl a whole bunch more trees Bombs. And, and develop it. And the reason for that is where, what I think happens then is then you don't see a lot of growth in the houses because they just develop more. You know, I, I had a doctor that bought out that way two houses. If he had bought one property post-war, semi-renovated, renovated it, he would have made four or five times more yep. doing that. But they serve a purpose out there, you know. And again, you've you got to be a bit careful. <laughs> I love um, this, Charles. 
full disclosure here, Charles has never listened to an episode of the podcast, this <laughs> podcast. Have yeah. you, Charles? No. Because I've been bad. It's, it, it, you're just saying exactly the same thing that we have talked about in yeah. regards to the outs, outskirts of Sydney, the outskirts of Melbourne. It's that principle of supply, ongoing supply, and that lack of scarcity, and the fact that your capital growth is going to be impacted because of that. And whereas if you buy something in the inner area where you've got higher demand for individual property and higher scarcity, so therefore you've got lower supply, higher demand, of course, that's going to put pressure on prices to go up and your investment long-term is going to do better. They're the basic principles. So uh, it's nice to hear that you're saying exactly the same thing applies in Brisbane as does in Sydney and Melbourne. It's nothing new, but I think you've got to be careful too, because there's those suburbs are great suburbs and they offer affordability. They offer, and look, the, you look at Springfield Lakes. I mean, it's got Orion, it's got huge uh, um, health complexes out there, it's yep. got huge schooling out there. So, from, a, from someone moving out there, look, absolutely, you know, from an affordability perspective, you would. If I was going to buy out there, I would be buying it as a diversification of my portfolio. Yeah. You know, where you might get a better rental return out there at a cheaper price point. And you then might buy in a in a in a suburb to match that off, and then you buy might might buy a townhouse. So I yeah. think it's it's if you were going to buy out there with a view for high capital growth, I think you'd have to be a bit careful. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that's good advice. I think the I've actually got a client who's got something in these areas. Um, you know, and we're talking quite hazy here because we don't want to offend, I guess, people no, in certain I, these but patches. Also, buying to live versus buying to invest are two different decisions. Well, and a lot of that, when you say your key point there was actually what's affordable and affordable is generally based due to someone's income and what someone's income is then driving what they can afford. And that means um, that mortgage repayments. And so that then pushes a pressure on prices long-term because the incomes aren't there to push prices up. Secondly, what's affordable is based on current interest rates. And, um, you know, what's pushing up the prices of these properties, people are going there with a certain amount of borrowing capacity and a certain amount of income. And then they're saying, well, based on 4% interest rates, I can afford 550000 And the big risk to that is if there's interest rate rises and or if there's, there's no income growth or there's an unemployment shock. And these things would smash these regions. When you're saying buying out in these regions, I've got a client who's got a property there and, um, you know, we had a really good chat around it and what they've got is huge blocks. They've got acres um, and they're in areas where, you know, every block in that area is an acre uh, and they're not building any more acre blocks. They're building 350 squares and, you know, that keeps, as the as that suburb does get bigger, whether it's the right thing to hold or not, you know, et cetera, but at least there's a bit of scarcity there for them, you know, because they've oh, got a- look. And I think it's look, and I think that's why you you if you're investing, it's always prudent to get a financial advisor that is a fay with property, mm. or look, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I think and that not is important. getting kickbacks from developers. Yeah, and I think that's very important because anything I do, or any advice, or anything I do, I, I, any of the people that I recommend, I get nothing for it. I don't yep. want even the financiers that do offer it. I say no, look. Just look after them. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would want to hear your thoughts on this around developers and, you know, how that plays with real estate agents and uh, what your experience is. Because I've had developers offer me 12% on Brisbane apartments, mm-hmm. you know. I've never taken any commission from any developer and I never will uh, and I completely don't go anywhere near but, off the plan. But, you know, is that true? Like, is that, you know, if your experience, have you heard developers paying Yeah, they do. They do. Look, but... Again, it's like anything. They're just businesses and they're just trying to get a sale. And they're and looking, if they're prepared to pay that and take that out of their margin, then so be it. And mm. I guess it comes back to ultimately as, as a buyer, buyer beware, you know, mm. do your due diligence, do your research, um, you know, and, and just make sure that the valuation sta- valves stack up. Yeah, doing it, you know. Well, they probably won't. So that's probably the challenge. There is that you know that money's got to come from somewhere, and it's coming from the developer's profit, which means that you know the property is probably not worth that much. And you know, there's a whole string of problems. I was just driving through Brisbane yesterday, and um, I thought it was I hadn't seen this ever before, where there was a couple of billboards, and the billboards were huge. Um, In Sydney, they'd be you know advertising an iPhone or an Audi or something, but in Brisbane, they were advertising rentals. Uh, and you can rent an apartment in this building for $395 a week. And to me, that just seems like absolute desperation by a developer where there's no way they can rent these these apartments. And so is there like a massive oversupply of rentals and people, developers are just getting desperate to, to rent? Look, I think, you know, I mean, developers do cop a little bit on it, but I think you've got to remember at the end of the day that the businesses and they've got margins and things and, and, and it comes back again, I always come back to as a buyer, 
you got to do your due diligence. You know, mm. you're responsible for your own due diligence. And yep. if you don't, you can't say blame the developer. The developer is just a person or a conglomerate that's bought a block of land, they put up things they're making, and look, yeah, sure, they want top dollar for it, and sure, they're paying, you know, some do offer huge commissions. Although when they're offering huge commissions, you usually got to sit back and say, well, why? Mm. <laughs> you know, no one offers huge commissions if the houses are selling. I yep. mean, that's just, you no, know, so. No, that's a really good point, that. And, and look, yeah. we're not here to bash developers. Developers, no, are, they're in the business. Not. But but we're here to help buyers make better decisions and they need to be aware of this. Exactly what you're saying, that, yeah, if there's a big commission on offer, why? But also they need to ask and they need to question if they're getting advice from someone, so if it's their accountant or their financial planner or their mortgage broker, I think it's good to ask the question, are you getting, how are you getting paid to make this recommendation? Because I, I often think that they aren't asking the questions and they it may not be disclosed. Look, in Queensland, you don't have to disclose commissions anymore. Right. You used to. Mm, don't anymore. The only thing you have you to disclose now is, for example, if I was getting a third party um you know, like the developer was buying me a holiday on top of it or something like that, mm. or the pest and building guy that I went and he gave me a, a bottle of champagne every time. You know, i got to disclose that and give mm -hmm. a value representation, but I don't have to disclose my commission or what I'm getting and where I'm getting it from. Wow. Um, yep. We used That's to. An you used to. You used to yeah. have to. Winding right. back regulation, that's always interesting. Look, in and property. I, I think, you know, in all fairness, I think, you know, I mean, real estate agents do get smashed, you know, and you get commissions and this, but what people don't realize is that's all we get. Mm. We don't have a stable job. We don't have any of that. And we've got mm. to take on all the risk. And, and I have a couple of people and I say, well, work with me for a month, mm. see how you look at it. So I think from an agent's perspective, look, I don't blame an agent if a developer comes along and offers them 12% that they would take it on board. Mm. The reality of it is, 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 is that that property will either stack up or it won't. Yeah, I guess you know, it's. I mean, I guess it's it's where your moral compass is really. I guess if if you see yourself as more of a trusted advisor as an agent and see yourself as more of a sustainable future within agency world, um, you want to build people that love you and care about you, and you know right. you can take the short term route where you can get a bit extra kickback, but. I don't know whether you want to be in business in Look, five years' time. Someone's offering you 12%, there's a reason for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. And you can tell you what, it's going to be an extremely hard sale, generally rule of thumb, because they wouldn't be offering the 12% if no. they didn't. So yeah. what I've got to manage as an agent is what is good stock to have and not good stock to have. Yeah. There's no point in me having 12% thinking I'm going to get 12%. And my decision based is, look, I look at that. Mm. I'll be candid with you. Obviously, it's an incentive. But I know, I know ten, nine times out of 10, we will struggle to sell that property yep. at the price the developer wants. Oh, and that's the point. If you're not 12% off it, maybe you could sell it easier, but there'd be no commission in it. Um, well, what I would rather say to developers is why don't you, you know, look, and you, again, you've got to be careful, is why don't you offer other incentives to the buyer mm. and, you know, from that perspective, because then you're more likely, and it might be, you know, I don't know, it's, you've got to be careful what you offer these days, but, you know, it might be that yep. they pay for well, they do do that. <laughs> yeah, they might pay the stamp duty. You know, I know that some developers are doubling yeah. the first homeowner's grant. Mm. From that yeah, I mean, and so. the thing is interesting right now is that um, because bank lending is getting quite tight and blacklisted postcodes is a thing, you know, a lot of people jump online and say banks don't blacklist postcodes and don't blacklist developments. They 100% some do. And all the banks are on risk off. And so you need bigger deposits now. For these areas and you know the, the, the bank they're trying to find ways developers to give this deposit to the client mm. which is not mm. really a deposit it's actually just a higher price and then you're giving the deposit to get it sold and it's really quite clever marketing to be honest every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress mistakes that can be avoided Please, Charles, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Look, I do, and I think I think there's an innate sometimes suspicion from buyers not to trust the agent. Look, and, and I get where that comes from because, look, sometimes we haven't done ourselves in good stead. Yeah. People have been dealt with. And I do know that some agents, for whatever reason, which is beyond me, don't treat buyers with kid gloves because mm. ultimately, end of the day, as I've said, you work for the seller, but you need mm, to go with, deal, have you? with the buyer. Mm. And I don't have any silver magic words that I can hypnotize people and pay more. 
You haven't, done, buyer, N- you haven't done NLP training? Yeah, no. I mean, look, <laughs> my view on it is is that job is to show value to the buyer and the more yep. value I can show them by a suburb tour or showing them relative sales and showing them what insurances are and things like that, then they may see more value in the property and offer more, but also because they trust my judgment mm-hmm. in terms of where I think it sits. Yep. And I'll give them candid of where I think that sort of thing. So they're more likely to come up in price as a result of that. Now, the example I'm using is is that what happened was that we had a buyer and he was innately suspicious about everything an agent did. So I said, yep. okay, look, what we like to do when we're a house is going through a contract process is we like to help as much as we can. We have a thing called house concierge, which basically allows us to do things outside that maybe most other agents wouldn't. Yeah. One of them is to make sure that tell us who the pest and building people are that you want to engage. We're happy to recommend some, but if you don't want to do that, bring your own in. Get them to give us a call. We will book the time. We will tell you when they're coming through and then come through. But this particular individual just didn't want to borrow that. Um, so he said, no, no, I'm not telling you who it is and I'm yep. not telling you when they're coming. Well, obviously he's going to tell us when, but he said, I'll tell you that the last minute. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, but it makes it difficult because I've got to give the vendor some notice and stuff like that. End of the, end, yep. end of the day, he ended up booking it and they made a mistake and it right. went a couple of houses down. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy, and they were tenanted, so... You know, they got a free pest and building and the tenants were none the wiser as a result. And so he did a building pest on the wrong house. Yeah. So, uh, and then look, yeah, so basically after that, never heard from him again. So, so he, didn't, he didn't buy the one he wanted. So no. he just had his tail between his legs and ran off. <laughs> oh, my God. Cause, yeah, because, I mean, I, I, I left messages and call, but I heard through. Um, did he donate that building and pest to that vendor and say, oh, if you wanted a free building and pest, here you go, mate. No, but, you know, the thing is, is I, <laughs> what can't, a goose. I can't influence... <laughs> A yep. pest and building person. I mean, in no. fact, if I start talking too much to a pest and yep. building, they're more likely to pull away because they don't trust the real estate agent, if you like. But, you know, that's crazy because oh. my job's there to be, and what we do is we get the client to attend yeah, and we book everything, make sure it's all so that everything's done, ready to go. The, the buyer then attends the last half hour. Yeah, I attend because then I can manage the guy coming in. And look, the reality of it is like anything, you know, it's, it's also dependent on a little bit of the quality of the person mm. doing the job. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, mm, like any industry. Shout out to build, good building and pest people, right? Like, you know, they are, you know, they are worth doubt. every single dollar if they're quality and they spend the look, time the ones, there. The ones we use, you know, they do a good job, they're thorough, and it's a lot of it's about wording. You yeah. know, I mean, how some people word things can be yeah. destructive to a buyer when they can, you know, they can, generally what I look for is a person saying, look, the house has things that need to be addressed they're yep. not major and the reason why the buyer attends is we want them to eyeball it yeah i mean that's a little tip there it could easily get lost in this podcast is that you know you're saying that the buyer should attend the last the- half hour attend talk to the pest and building guy because let me give you an example we had a house where it was a great house lovely everything was going sweet and then all of a sudden the pest and building tapped me on the shoulder and said look there's a termite mound on the stump mm. i thought oh here we go now the buyer was there and so I said, well, look, give me the breakdown. He said, look, it hasn't breached the ant cap. Mm. It's there, it's live. And the main reason is there's a cracked pipe underneath, which is releasing water, drawing them in. Ah, uh, yeah. So I went to the buyer and said, look, this is what it is. Let's have a look at it. So he, we got under, had a look. Um, and I said, if I can get the seller to fix that, fix the pipe mm-hmm. and get everything done, would you still buy the house? Mm. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Had we not been there, yeah, had no, the buyer not been there, the report would have been termites and yeah. that's all they would have seen. Yeah. It's a really good point actually. And and we certainly in our business, we you know, we encourage our clients to come along to the very end of the building inspection as well to have a walkthrough yep. for everything that's been found. Yep. And if they're not there, obviously we do that on their behalf. We're there with them if they are there. But you know, one of the things that is important to look at also is not just those potential deal breakers and okay, is it really a deal breaker? What can be done about it? What can we go back to the agent and get the vendor to to, to address, et cetera, et cetera? But it's also the maintenance of a house. Every property needs to be maintained. It's part of maintaining the value of that property as well. Yeah. And so just understanding that and understanding those things that you will need to take on when you own it. So I think that they're all important to cover. Uh, oh, look, I agree. You know, like particularly when they've got Queenslanders, you know. Queen oh, timber. Like, you know, look, yeah. 
probably say this love and dangerously. Hate them, I guess. It's like my first girlfriend, you know, like yeah. a lot of effort went in. Yeah. Not a lot, a lot of not came back. Yeah. <laughs> just, just having a bit of fun here. But what I say to them is look, That's what you date, make sure you wash down the house every couple of years. Make sure mm. you get the pest and building done every year. Yeah. The thing with Queensland is in any wooden house, if there's issues or wood rot that you see happening, get it fixed straight away because yeah. it can accelerate very quickly. But apart from that, look, you do all that, it's actually not that bad. Well, because it's actually, timber's actually quite easy to maintain as long as you're on top of it. You know? Well, look, I say to people, look, these houses were built in 1920, they're still here, and they're probably mm. still going to be in another 100 years. So that's a testament to the quality of the Yeah, build. I mean, I, I know you work with the buyer's agent that's, you know, been here on our podcast and, you know, it's very common. I mean, one of the huge strategies with clients who are investing in Brisbane is, you know, A, yes, go for a Queensland on a great street, but also maybe try to get something that has been quite recently renovated, you know, to a, to a certain level. So, you know, those maintenance issues aren't really there look, in the first, you know, five to 10 years for an investor. So it's to, you know, would you agree that that's- Look, I think it depends on what you want. Yeah. Look, there are some benefits to buying an unrenovated but tidy Say, for example, a post-war or – look, yep. I just saw one recently, which is it's, – it's not renovated, but it's very tidy. Queenslander yeah, on a right, good-sized yeah. block. And the, the investor that's buying that is going to sit on it and then rent it out and then with the view that in time he may move in there and then build himself yeah. or he might renovate – increase the rent so th there's options there for, yeah it's that. just a lot of investors just when they move in they underestimate the cost to maintain some of these buildings and you know if it has been recently renovated you just take out that you know cash flow risk in the first five years which is yeah. the danger zone with every property so charles that's been absolutely brilliant i uh, appreciate you. you being very candid on lots of different stuff we talked that's about right. lots of different um, areas so i really appreciate it okay, great thank, thank you very you. much yeah thank it's you. been great it's a pleasure. it was fun we want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... What we talked about with Charles was investors buying timber houses and old houses. Now, you certainly don't in Sydney, Melbourne and probably any other state see that a timber house would specifically be a good option for an investor. But in Brisbane, the Queenslander has enormous appeal, you know, in terms of looking for a period home with charm, one that a lot of buyers want and then there's scarcity, then the Queenslander actually has it all, but they're made out of timber. So there are certainly things that you need to really understand if you're going to have an investment and it is going to be timber. Okay, first and foremost, the maintenance, you need to be on top of it. So if you live in Brisbane and you buy a Queenslander, then you know, you can you're on hand basically to keep an eye on that. But you need to really make sure that you've got a top property manager, one who's very proactive and one who's very, very involved in having regular inspections of that property. They'll also make sure that you get a really good tenant to look after the property and let you know if there's things that need to be addressed. And there are things like wood rot and termites and, and lots and lots of risks around timber. It's a relatively cheap material to actually deal with, with a property, but you do have to stay on top of it. Once again, the reason why you might buy that type of property in Brisbane if you are an investor is because of that gentrification piece. Now, you can go back to episode 33. We interview Peter Koulizos, who's the property professor, and we talk a lot about gentrification there. So you might want to go back to that episode to look for what are the key factors behind gentrification and how to identify an area that's about to go off, but it's the type of property that's really important as well. Please join us for our next episode when we have a conversation with an absolute difference. The conversation we'll be having is with Michelle Adair, the CEO of the Housing Trust, a Wollongong-based for-purpose organisation that builds and manages affordable housing. We're going to be talking about housing affordability and not just whether first home buyers need to stop eating avocado on toast so that they can afford to get on the property ladder. We're looking at rental affordability and other options for property investors. A very interesting episode, a lot of surprises and we challenge a few preconceptions as well. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk. Editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo.
Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.